Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And this week, I'm really pleased that we have lured Will Gardner, the CEO of Drax Group, to join us. Will has been a key architect of Drax's flexible, low carbon and customer focused strategy. He joined, I think it was 2015, initially as CFO and then appointed CEO in early 2018. So lots to talk about around uh, Drax's role in this kind of movement towards net zero and decarbonisation. I'm sure, sure, Will, you've got plenty of thoughts on the nature of the market and government policy and everything. So, so welcome to the podcast. And what I'm going to do is just ask you to start by describing a bit, like what's brought you personally to this moment in time? So you're in this role in a very interesting company, massively contentious times. What, what got you here? Um, so thanks, Alex. And it's great to be here for the podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I've had a quite a varied career. Uh, I started my career in finance. Uh, I've worked in technology companies. I've worked in an internet company. And um, at the end of 2015, the job that I had was, uh, was gone because the company I was working for had been bought. So I was looking for my next challenge. And um, I really wanted to get involved in something to do with climate change. Because right? I guess for me, the sort of the story or the simple thought is when, when you go to work every day, you always have, I like to have interesting problems to solve. And I like to have you know, good people to work with and enjoy my colleagues. But actually having something beyond that, a real purpose to what I was doing was, was something I hadn't really had before. I really wanted that. So, so joining Drax was a way to do that. And I've absolutely found that to be true. Yeah, no, I think we hear a lot from people um, through the podcast, but also through our client base who had a similar trajectory. They might have been full-on private equity guys or full-on kind of industrial women, but but what what has sort of brought them to the point is that need for a kind of a connection to something a bit more than just the making of a salary, right? Um, exactly. Anyway, interesting to hear that. So let's kick off then. So the kind of starting question for you, we're how many months on? So three, three and a half months on from COP26, and it had such a buzz and build-up. I mean, obviously, particularly here in the UK, but globally, I think, what, what was your... What did you make of it? To what extent do you consider it to have been a successful meeting? And yeah, how would you grade it in its performance and delivery? Yeah, so I would give it a reasonably good grade. I guess it's somewhere in the range of six to seven, I think. Um, I've actually been to, I think, four cops now, which is hard to believe. Um, first one, I was always on the fringes as a sort of corporate participant. Um, and each one, I think, has a different tone and sort of does something different. So Paris, obviously set a whole new set of targets or, or set a whole new sort of overarching umbrella target that we all wanted to get to as a sort of two degrees or less of climate change. Uh, and then the smaller ones in between might be focused on coal. For example, I was in Katowice, we did that, or I was in Madrid and we may, uh, we actually made a commitment to becoming carbon negative in Madrid. Um, and so my, my big takeaway from the COP in Glasgow was that it was, there was a lot more corporate involvement than I think you would have seen before. And it was interesting because, you know, just as an aside, that probably led to more protests than you would have seen before, too, because a lot of people were not comfortable with that. But for me, the, the more that sort of the corporate world and frankly, that sort of heavy industrial world gets involved in uh, the climate change fight, the better, because it ultimately a lot of the companies, I think Drax is one of these, have um, have skills in terms of heavy engineering to sort of to actually get involved in some of these problems. We have capital that we can bring to bear. So uh, and I believe that these companies, the vast majority of them are serious about committing to do something about climate change. So I was actually quite pleased with the outcome. And I just give you a couple of sort of specific things. I mean, the, um, again, at every COP since Paris and since before that, uh, getting off coal has been high on the agenda. And 
And as you know, Drax has done that. I mean, we are um, very close to being permanently off coal completely. And one of the things that's surprised me in the past is that we haven't had more people coming to us and saying, well, how have you done that? You know, how does one do a conversion to biomass? Um, and actually, you know, before, after, during sort of COP this time around, we've had lots more people talking to us about that. So I think people are getting more serious about moving beyond coal. Uh, and the second thing I think is interesting to me is that the whole idea of carbon removal, so that call it the net in net zero, i.e. permanently taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, I think moved way up the agenda at COP. You know, I had meetings with you know, John Kerry, you know, the US envoy on climate change to talk about carbon removals and there was real interest in it. And I think that's a, a real positive. Yeah, we're definitely hearing more and more actually from both philanthropic groups actually interestingly supporting mm -hmm. that kind of CDR movement, um, mm -hmm. sorry, carbon removal uh, movement, and also from more and more of the, the startups and emerging tech players or emerging project mm -hmm. players mm -hmm. in that space. Mm -hmm. It definitely seems to have been given a, a kickstart. Moving on then, the, the kind of one of the other big themes I think of the last six, nine months has been the kind of growth in the voluntary carbon markets. And certainly if you read any analyst paper on it, everyone seems to think that this is going to have a massive mm -hmm. explosion of interest. What's your take on it? And to what extent do you think it's on track to develop to be an effective tool for incentivizing decarbonization? Yeah, maybe what's your view? And then where are we with it as well? So, so I think my view is that it's, it is a critical piece in the puzzle. Uh, it, it will just, it will enable us to move much faster. I mean, if you, in addition to having compliance markets, you know, again, you know, markets like the EU, like the UK, you know, like China increasingly where you know, there are carbon taxes that are actually forcing people to remove, or better said, to reduce their CO2 emissions. Um, voluntary markets, I think will make that happen faster and at a lower cost. So I think they are sort of massively important. I would also say though, that they have a bit of a bad history, right? I mean, there's a lot of um, sort of maybe not so legitimate projects that have been done. There's a lot of question as to whether certain types of you know, removal credits or re reduction credits are legitimate. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to actually make them more real, right? So, you know, and to be, make them more legitimate, I think is probably a better word. So we're part of something called you know, the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, where all of these issues, and they're, they're, they're sort of boring issues, right? But important, what I call plumbing, right? So are these things being certified properly? Are they being validated? You know, who's doing that? Can you audit them? You know, are there actually, is there real additionality involved? You know, meaning there's actually, is someone getting credit for something that wouldn't have happened otherwise? Because if it would, would have happened, then why should they get credit? Um, so again, a lot of work has to be done there. And I think the other thing that I think is really important is that as the, these markets grow, there needs to be a, an increased distinction between something that either avoids emissions or reduces emissions and something that actually removes them, right? Because ultimately, in my view, permanent sort of geological storage is gonna become a real, sort of the gold standard for what actually, um, you know, what is the real commodity that people want in a, in a carbon market? And it's actually that kind of permanent geological storage will be key. And I think that's gonna be an important uh, development over the next few years. Yeah, I guess kind of the interesting question for a lot of, companies and especially the energy intensives is what proportion of a strategy can rely on that or should be focused on that do you, do you have yeah. a feel that i don't i don't yeah. i don't know well, if I guess, have the magic percentage but what what's your take on that so it's, it's, a, it's a very it's a it's a tricky topic right because there's a lot of um sort of moral hazard involved in this and there's a lot of very strong emotional views on this as in you know sbti who is sort of setting the definition of what or at least at this point they are, and I think that may change, um, but they're the ones who are defining 
how corporates can you know, legitimately describe a strategy as being a net zero strategy. And they are saying that people need to have reduced their emissions by at least 90% before they'll be able to count actual removals as part of their strategy. Right? Now, my own view is that that feels, you know, that feels quite high as a, as a bar. And I think, um, so I think that we should probably be a bit more flexible, but I do, I do absolutely agree. We need to reduce emissions first before we remove. But what I think people are increasingly recognizing is that the time to wait before we start removing is gone, right? I mean, it's just, there's not enough time left before 2050 you know, for us to wait before we start doing proper removals, right? So for example, you know, our first BEX project, and then we are running as fast as it's humanly possible, um, can be up and running in 2027, right? Now the UK has, is by the way, I think the world's most aggressive target for greenhouse gas removals. and their target is to have 5 million tons of removals by 2030. Um, you know, our project is, is critical for that to happen and we can't move any faster than we're moving, right? So, so I think that actually the, the question of sort of, in some ways it's a bit of a moot point, I think, because as fast as we run, we're only gonna be able to remove so much. So we just need to start moving as fast as possible. And if we get to a sort of a question of, should you reduce or should you remove, that's maybe that's a high quality problem, right? If we have both options. So 2027 is the, the kind of, planned uh kind of it's ready to go we're up and running date how how long so when, when did you kick off that project just i'm just I, I bet there'll be people listening who are thinking oh my god i've got x number so of plants <laughs> <laughs> yeah how how long will it have taken to go from sort of a to z so we started um well i guess here we can go back further i mean we have quite a long history as a company in, in investigating carbon capture so we were part of a project in the uk called white rose um you know now which is now it's been sort of 10 years since we were working on that uh, which was very close to being kicked off and then ultimately was um the funding for that was dropped by the uk government in 2015. um but this round i guess really starts about about three years ago maybe 2018. um you know claire perry who was the energy minister in the uk at that point in time she really reinvigorated um, british efforts to actually put in place carbon capture and storage she created the whole um, carbon capture industrial cluster idea. There's really companies working together with government to put in place the infrastructure. Um, and now, you know, the, the cluster that we're part of, the so-called East Coast cluster, has been chosen as one of the priority clusters. And um, and you know, we'll start. You know, we've got two years before we start building. So we'll start building in 2024, and then it, it'll take about three years to get everything ready. So, I mean, I guess broadly speaking, it'll be a 10-year time frame between the time when we really started on paper thinking about it and actually getting it done. And this, just as a kind of a practical question, if if there are people in similar positions leading similar types yeah. of companies, is that the kind of timeline you'd expect for them? Or is that, did that take longer because you were at the very early stage of driving this kind of, this kind of work? Yeah, I, th I think it has taken longer. I mean, and it, well, a couple of things that, you know, as we, so we are also now developing plans to do back, so, so bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is how we plan to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And we are developing plans to do that in the US. Now, now our first project there, you know, we think, you know, we probably started last year and we expect to be up and running probably by 2027. So that's already maybe a six year time frame, not a 10 year one. Um, but as we get, you know, as we get more experience doing this, you know, we, we should have a, we'll have a design that we can, it's almost, almost a bit of a plug and play type of design. You know, the regulatory frameworks will be in place to do this. And we expect in different places that they will have, they may very well have auctions for these things, right? So you know, the UK, sorry, the EU, for example, has recently introduced legislation to allow 
people who do BECs, so companies that actually are taking CO2 out of the atmosphere using BECs to get sort of tax credits. So an EU carbon allowance for every ton that they remove, right? So if that kind of system is in place, then the whole thing can move faster. Well, I guess that kind of partly answers a question I had for you, which is sort of what, other than COP, what has the last year been like for you? But you've mentioned that this US project has obviously been front of mind. What, what, what else has been some of the wins or maybe even some of the lessons yeah. that you guys have taken from the last year? Well, it's been, a, if I sort of you know, zoom in a little bit on Drax specifically, um, 2021 was both was a massively successful year for us. But in a but also massively difficult. Right? Um, maybe I'll start with why it was difficult. I mean, so it was the second year of COVID, which has been true for everyone. Um, so obviously that was a challenge for everybody. And I think the as as we've gotten further into it, I think the impacts of COVID on people's mental health, on, on their physical health, has, has has really been quite wearing. I mean, I think so. Our our people have been uh, quite challenged by it. And as you can imagine, our business of running power stations, running pellet plants. You know, a lot of colleagues are actually are doing that, you know, when the pandemic is raging around them. So really challenging for them. We also have a lot of people working from home and that's also can be difficult for people. So the COVID environment was hard. Um, we also faced, you know, our business is all, it's a very physical business. You know, so when we make pellets, we are getting, you know, we're taking sawdust out of a sawmill. We are turning that into pellets. We're then shipping those to the ports and then across the ocean to the power station, moving them around and, and we had very difficult weather. Right? You know, so we had hurricanes in the southeast of the U.S. We had massive wildfires in British Columbia combined with flooding there. Um, so the so the weather conditions were quite difficult. So so a difficult year, but we achieved a lot as well. Right. So the um, you know we've done well financially, which is obviously good news. We've been um, we've kept everybody safe and well generally, which is a key issue for us as a business. Um, you know, we've been called on to help keep the UK energy system running at times, which is it's been a very challenging year for the UK energy system. Um, and strategically, we're actually in a very different place. Um, so if I think about what we've done strategically, so we actually bought um, Pinnacle, another pellet company, in 2021, and that means that we're really one of the global leaders in both making and using sustainable biomass, um, and that's really reshaped the company. Right? So that, along with the develop, the advances we've made with Bex, mean that really the company we've got a, a sort of a new sort of strategic focus, which is on how can we be uh, a global leader in wood pellets? How can we be a global leader in negative emissions? You know, how can we be a leader in the UK in in dispatchable renewable power? And so all of that came into focus in 2021 in a great way. So it was a very very good year for us. I think the COVID point is a really interesting one because I I sort of even feel personally, and we're, we're a very small you know we're a small business, but we deal with a lot of very big international companies and national companies. And as we're kind of exiting the, the kind of hardcore COVID phase, it's sort of very quickly hard to remember quite what it was like. But as you're saying, you know that that kind of impact on people in all roles within a, a you know within industry, it's, it's not insignificant, is it? And it's sort of definitely has slowed down projects, slowed down decision-making yeah. and kind of- and, also just, it just, and really, I think it's, it is, um, obviously everyone's got very different circumstances, right? But it, it, so, so one of the challenges I think about COVID is in how differently it's impacted people in those different circumstances, right? So if you have young children, how do you handle the sort of different challenges of schooling, childcare? You know, if you have elderly parents, how do you handle that? You know, there's all sorts of, I mean, if, you, if, you, you know, if you have to be in the power station, that's all complicated. So it's, it's been a very complicated year. Well, assuming, fingers crossed, that the COVID environment sort of dissipates more over this next year or two, what, when you look ahead, what do you see as sort of kind of the important goalposts or yeah, what is it that excites you as you look forward, I guess? What, what are you looking forward to now? Yeah, so I think the, um, 
super excited about continuing with the projects that we're doing. Right? So, you know, we would expect to have a firm commitment from the UK government to our project um, for Bex at Drax uh, in 2022. So looking forward to that. Um, it'll be a major milestone year for us in terms of our coal fire generation. So, you know, we've, you know, aren't doing any coal sort of commercially, which means we only run now if we're required to run by the system operator. So when there's a very tight system. Um, but actually, we will close the coal units completely at the end of September. So that's a very major milestone um, for us. Um, I think we are also going to, you know, we, we are making real progress in our own sort of, let me put it in context. We've, re we've reduced our carbon emissions from power generation by more than 90% over the last decade. So we've made you know, massive strides in that area, but we're also, now we're getting to a sort of, in some ways it's, it'll be harder, right? Cause that was all about converting from coal to biomass. But now with the last 10%, we're getting some really interesting projects for how we can remove and reduce those emissions. So I'm very excited about, about that. Now we're planning to open an office in Japan. So actually that's gonna be super exciting for us because with the opportunities we see for biomass power generation to expand globally, I think those are huge. So that will be another big milestone for, for us as a company. It'll be our first uh, Asian office. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So lots of exciting things happening in 2022. You mentioned the um, UK government and obviously your, your plans at the moment are pretty reliant on the UK government bringing forward policy to support development of carbon removal. What, what's your sense of that at the moment? What's the feeling around that? Do you, yeah, what, what do you think? So, so, so I think, I think it's, it's, um, What's interesting, if you go back and to look at it in the, in the context, I mean, the, the when Claire Perry sort of restarted the program again about three years ago, um, there was legitimately, I think, a lot of skepticism from industry um, because it, you know carbon capture had been tried before, hadn't uh, the government hadn't come through on their commitments. Um, if you roll the picture forward three years, there's massive excitement around carbon capture in the UK. Right, there are um, dozens of projects that are bidding into this process with the government, right, um, and I think the government's one of their big challenges is that they don't have the resources to analyze and, and look at all the things that, that people want to do, right? So, so my my um sort of exhortation to the government is you know keep pushing or keep doing it. You know you've got um, business very excited. I mean millions, if not tens of millions of pounds, are being spent by industry in planning to do carbon capture uh, in the UK, which is fundamentally um, what we need to support our project is the government support for carbon capture and and. It, it has the, such a great opportunity for the UK to, to be a leader in, in next generation sort of green technologies in just the same way that you know, the UK is a leader in offshore wind. Um, it can be a leader in carbon capture and it's, been a, it's a very innovative structure, right? The whole idea of these carbon you know, industrial clusters, the whole idea that this is about creating next generation jobs as much as it's about um, decarbonization. You know, there's, there's huge positives to the whole thing. And, and, and it's interesting to me, I'm, um, at the risk of wading too much into politics, which I shouldn't do, um, the you know, the fact that the leveling up white paper didn't actually make a bigger thing of how um, next generation energy technologies will be a will be a huge source of investment uh, that the government is frankly sponsoring in the in the in, in more um, in less prosperous areas of the United Kingdom. I think that's a, I think that's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity for the government to make it clear what they're doing. Right? So as long as you know, that's what I'm, again, my message to them is you know, keep pushing, keep growing. We're ready for it. Mm. What and, and sort of more internationally, you know, what what do you think is needed from global leaders to again to, to keep pushing these technologies forward? I mean, the, the UK, has, as you say, has definitely staked its claim to offshore CCOS, but different regions have different opportunities. What, what are you expecting and needing to see? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that the um, 
if 2020 and maybe 2021 were years in which you know, we spent a lot of time and effort, um, you know, we've created something called, for example, the Coalition for Negative Emissions, right? To try and make the case more strongly for why carbon removals were needed. Um, so the message to that governments in the last couple of years has been, you know, come on guys, wake up, this whole carbon removal thing is gonna be super important or we're never gonna get to net zero. Uh, I think that message has landed. And now what, I'm, what we're saying to governments, okay, now that you have recognized the need for this, you need to start putting the policies in place to make it happen. So that's why I was very encouraged by the sort of legislation now going through the EU to say, we will, you know, we will give people carbon credits for CO2 that they take out of the atmosphere and permanently store. That's a massively positive step. Um, in the US, um, there's a, a regulation called 45Q. And for people who are not aware of that, it's, it's a $45 sort of subsidy effectively that the companies get for every ton of CO2 that they take out of the atmosphere. Um, and as part of the Build Back Better bill, which hopefully will become law, another question, um, that's gonna go up to at least $85 a ton, maybe $135 a ton. So those types of government support for sort of next generation technologies that will allow for carbon removal, like we're getting to a point where we're actually putting substantive, you know, positive policies in place, which actually will make these projects real, which is great. Yeah, the, the other kind of policy initiative that kind of was coming in discussion, I suppose, around the edges of COP was the green procurement, getting governments to really sign up to green procurement, which I know doesn't actually directly impact at Drax, but it impacts you and companies like yours if if more green steel is being bought and if oh, more green absolutely. cement is being bought. It'd be interesting to see if that can scale quickly, you know, because I think that's the main yeah. thing we hear from the manufacturers is that's the driver. That's what they need is, is a market to buy this product, you know, and if they, they can see that, then all these other things, they will invest yeah. more, more quickly. No, no, no and, and to me, I saw a, a statistic on yesterday, which said that I think it's going to cost something like $142 billion a year for several decades to decarbonize the steel industry. Right? And so I think for me, the, um, again, you're, we're sort of, it's another example of how we're, we're moving from a period of, of asking ourselves, how are we going to do this? Or sorry, we're moving from a period of asking, how can we do this? Or can we do this? To now, you know, what do we need to do to actually make it happen, right? Um, and I think it's going to be, again, it's, it's hundreds of trillions of dollars of capital that needs to be reallocated. And that's, again, if I were sort of at a very macro level talking to policymakers, it's, you know, how do we make it easier for that capital reallocation, right? So, you know, the global renewable energy system needs to grow, you know, multiple, multiple times, right? And, you know, just getting permits to do offshore wind is so difficult, right? So how can we make all of those things easier so that this capital can get reallocated to the things that need to be done? Well, I guess that, that might lead into or be part of the answer to the, this next question, which is your, your sense, your view on renewables and a, a green electricity grid, as it, you know, I guess that the phrase being the cornerstone of industrial decarbonization. What's, again, just your comment or thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, well, I guess the, the um, interesting thought for me, again, if I go back to sort of 2015, when I sort of joined the sort of climate change battle in earnest, is that the, um, the, the two degrees sort of challenge or sort of target that was set at Paris was, I guess, in my view, at that point in time, very, um, very ambitious and sort of notional. I mean, there wasn't really any idea, I would say, of how that would be done from a science, technology, finance point of view. Um, I'm actually a member of something called the Energy Transitions Commission, uh, which has done lots of great work. Well, you know, I guess Adair was on the panel with us. Um, Adair is the leader of that and, and done a lot of so actually defining quite specifically what needs to be done. And, and I actually think one of the great achievements of the last five years is actually setting out the, the, the route map to how we can actually keep 1.5 alive, which I think 
Um, I still think we can, although it's going to be hard. Um, and the cornerstone of that is is green. It has to be green electricity, right? Because everywhere you look, I mean, the first thing is, you know, just by decarbonizing the energy sector, you make a huge difference, right? But then the route to decarbonization of of everything else, you know, whether it's you know electric vehicles to decarbonize transport, whether it's hydrogen to decarbonize heavy industry, maybe aviation, you know, whether it's um, you know, heat pumps to decarbonize home heating in the UK. There's so many things that will require green electricity that it just, everywhere you look, it gets that, that challenge gets bigger and bigger. And so again, all of the investment that needs to go into that is really, I think the next big challenge, which is that we know how to do it. It's the lowest, you know, wind and solar are the lowest cost form of energy anywhere now. And it's really a question of how do we make it happen? You mentioned um, that kind of core target elusive target maybe 1.5 degrees what's your what's your personal feeling on that does do you think that is something that we can still hold to well, I'll you, I, I will I will um well my first thing is that we have to get there so I'll, I'll sort of ignore the question in a certain sense so, so first point is I think we have to get there because the cost of not getting there is huge right and the second point I would say is that the, the real question is not will we get there the question is you know what do we have to keep doing to keep the dream alive right and I, I think that's the thing that I think we all need to focus on is that that's Let's take the decisions now to keep the policies moving or for companies to make the investments move to actually to make, to make it, to keep it possible, right? Because if we, if we focus on the question of, you know, will it happen? It, it's very easy to get disillusioned. It's very easy to get disappointed. And I think that would be the, that's the wrong outcome. But also, I mean, the other thing I think is, is um, we will start to find is, is that there's, there's so much detail in a lot of this work, right? So, you know, as we, for example, are setting scope one, scope two, scope three emissions targets, right? You know, it's, it's gonna fundamentally change pretty much everything we do as a company, right? You know, how we make budgeting decisions, how we make investment decisions. So you know, we just need to get on with all that work, right? Yeah, I think the just get on with it message is exactly. <laughs> um, so last question from me, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think we can exit a podcast with the CEO of Drax without talking about the kind of, I guess the kind of, number one pushback that you probably get in media and um yeah from others as well which is how how we reconcile carbon removals carbon negativity with a global supply chain that's very dependent upon shipping and you know the emissions that that entails so clearly i am not the first person to mention this so what it what is what what's yeah. your take on yeah. that question and yeah yeah well i guess so the first thing i would say is that the um the supply chain, there are emissions in the supply chain, let's be clear, right? And so if if one sort of thinks about um, coal as a comparison, right? You know, broadly speaking, you know, a megawatt hour of electricity, you know, when generated by coal, you know, gives you, you know, one ton of CO2. Right? You know, if we think about our supply chain, you know, if we generate, you know, one megawatt hour of electricity using biomass, and again, you know, we still have emissions coming out of the power station, but they are, you know, recaptured in the forest, uh, so it's a biogenic CO2, which is a fundamentally different idea, um, and one which is renewable and widely accepted as such. Um, there's about there's about 100 kilograms of CO2 in our supply chain, so about 10%. Right? So, I, I'm you know we're not ignoring that, but I think it's important that people recognize it's it's quite a small number um, compared to what the emissions would have been if we were using coal. Right? So that's the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing, so the other questions I think more broadly is is I think people. Um, we need to make it more clear to people what impacts that we have in the forest, right? Um, so, you know, we use uh, you know, residuals from harvesting, we use residuals from sawmills, 
know, we're not, you know, no one is cutting down a tree to make wood pellets. People are harvesting the trees that they harvest because they want to make, you know, lumber for housing or lumber for furniture, and um, which fundamentally is a good thing because we need to we need to have more, you know, things made out of wood and fewer things made out of steel and cement. That's an important part of the decarbonization story. And then we use the residuals in such a way that actually makes makes harvesting and replanting those forests more economic for the people that own them. And the, the overall economic outcome of this is that the forests where we source from are, are growing. So for example, you know, we, we've done analysis of the catchment areas around each of the pellet plants that we have. And the amount of standing carbon I, in the trees that are growing in the ground is growing up year on year and is higher than it was you know, 10 years ago. And overall, if, for example, if you look at the Southeast of the US, um, there's more than double the amount of standing carbon in the ground as there was in the 1950s, right? And that's again because it's a, a healthy, you know, well-regulated, you know, you know, forestry system where people or farm, you know, people who own um, timber are making a decent return and they're doing it in a sustainable way because they're required to, right? So we're part of that system and very much trying to support that and, and make it a, make it a stronger one. So, you know, again, one of our core principles is that you know we want forestry to be sustainable. Everything we do has to be. And we're trying to do more of that and then to make sure that that's real. And the shipping piece is that, I mean, I know obviously the shipping industry, You there's a story every day about how the big uh, shipping groups are really trying to find their, their own route to uh, carbon neutral shipping. What's the conversation that you, I mean, I guess you must be talking about this as an ongoing thing with yeah. your suppliers. No, and absolutely. And so there's, and there's, there's different, um, I think there's, there's multiple ways that we can, sort of reduce the emissions in our supply chain sort of over the short and medium term. So, you know, for example, people are experimenting with using wind power on, um, you know, on ocean growing vessels. It, you know, that doesn't get you to zero, um, but it can be, a, you know, it can you know, reduce emissions by 30%, for example. So it can make a difference. You know, we're looking at ways of shortening the supply chain. So for example, you know, we are very actively looking at sourcing more material in the UK, for, for example, from working with the NFU on some um, projects there to sort of, look at energy crops. And again, we are doing that quite carefully because there's lots of implications on agriculture that need to be considered to, to make sure it's beneficial, not only for the climate, but also for nature. So there's stuff we're doing around that. But, and, and then ultimately in the long term, the question is, you know, what, what's the right fuel gonna be that will ultimately replace you know, bunker or fossil fuels based fuels for shipping? Right? And I think there's a lot, you know, people talk about ammonia, people talk about hydrogen. So there's lots of work going on in that area. And we're very much in dialogue with our shipping partners about what the right, what the right answers are. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. No, thanks, Alex. Very good. I enjoyed it. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.